Turn on our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 20. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together. We come to Acts chapter 20. If you're with us this morning and without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and they'll put one in your hand if you wave to them. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Okay. My clock shows a quarter to three, so let's just close in prayer now and um, wrap this up so we'll get that worked on. Acts chapter 20, three verses. Verse 22, Paul writing, inspired by the Spirit, and he said, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulation await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my uh, life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... Every revelation that's contained in your word, we realize that the precision with which your Holy Spirit has written this book, not an ounce of fat on it, no waste at all, Lord. So there's a reason for these three verses, the revelation here, and we're always thankful to get a little further glimpse at the Apostle Paul's life and what it is that made him tick, what went on between you and him uh, in order to live the dramatically influential life for the kingdom of God that he lived. And so we pray that you would bring the witness of your Holy Spirit and the voice of your Holy Spirit to these three verses and bring the applications as they uh, are uh, directed at our lives Bring those, Lord, to the forefront of our minds and of our hearts this morning as well. And we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul is now nearing, very much nearing, the end of his third missionary journey. I won't be saying that for too many more weeks. I know I've been saying it for a long time, but he's taking his time finishing this third missionary journey. He's called for the elders of, of the church of Ephesus to come and meet him in the city of Miletus, and that is on the western coast of what we know as modern-day Turkey today. He is essentially convinced that he will never, ever see them again, and, uh, and he is meeting with them for the purpose of turning the church at Ephesus over to their oversight. Now, it's always a very, very sobering thing um, an incredible responsibility uh, for the transfer of the leadership of a church to go uh, from one person to another person to, or to another group. And when you consider, uh, I mean, a, a huge responsibility when it happens today, but I, when Karen and I moved to Modesto uh, 30-some years ago, there were already something like 130 churches in town. Uh, we got that from the welcome wagon list that came to us as a new uh, person living in Modesto. 
Uh, there were relatively few churches uh, in existence in the world at this particular point in time, and uh, probably the church at uh, Ephesus, arguably uh, the most influential of all of them. And Paul is turning this church over to the uh, oversight of these men. Paul has invested three years of his life in establishing that church, and he wanted to give them some final instructions and a final charge before doing so. I do am grateful for the fact that the Holy Spirit, in His wisdom and in His grace, He has recorded this sermon that Paul gives to these Ephesian elders because evidently it has something to teach all of us. And so He's recorded in the Word of God, not just leaders, but each of us as Christians. Because even though it's directed at church leadership, it does have a lot to say to each of us as Christians because the Bible teaches from one end to the other that each of us as Christians are called to some form of Christian service, something that we have been personally gifted by the Holy Spirit to accomplish in the world in our brief sojourn here and whatever that ministry is that that it might be. It can be within a marriage. It can be uh, in singleness and child rearing and being an employee or an employer or being a student or a neighbor, volunteering at a hospital or uh, in a school or serving at a church or some other Christian organization and so forth. His discourse to these Ephesian elders really is made up of two uh, parts. First, he spoke to them of all of the things that they had seen in his life uh, for three years of his ministry there in Ephesus. And the idea was that they were to make these things an example in their ministry as well. The second portion of his discourse, uh, which is verses 28 through uh, 38, which we'll take a look at, Lord willing, next week, he gives them his uh, personal charge to them. He commissions them now, now to lead the church into its next season of its existence. But it's fascinating that right in the middle of these two sections of what it is that he speaks to them about, Paul provides us with one of the greatest autobiographical statements uh, provided to us in the entire New Testament. I have a dear pastor friend who considers verse 24 to be Paul's life verse. He's not dogmatic about it. He doesn't say that everyone has to uh, believe him and his opinion uh, related to that. But he floats it out whenever he teaches on this particular passage. He floats it out nonetheless. And I happen to like the fact that he does so. And it isn't because I couldn't find uh, another passage or two from the New Testament that I don't think might uh, more appropriately describe, uh, you know, be Paul's life verse uh, that would be on a par with this particular verse, 24. But I like the fact that he speaks of it this way because it makes us stop and consider the uh, incredible value of the passage that's before us. Because in verses 20 through 2 through 24, we're given a glimpse at the heart, the mind, the motivations uh, of, the, of the Apostle Paul, all of the things that give us a glimpse at 
uh, who he was and why he did what he did, a glimpse at what it is that made him tick. He is arguably, and I think uh, it would be hard to argue against it though, uh, the most influential single Christian in the history of the church. And uh, any insight that we might get into what did he face in that calling? And then uh, how did he then deal with all that he faced and all of the persecution, all of the opposition, all of the difficulty, and then ultimately to have his head separated from his body and dying a martyr's death and anything that we can give that he gives to us, not some author of some book somewhere over here that then does something about a famous person and is trying to read into all that they wrote and all that they said, but nothing is clear, nothing is uh, more true than when the person speaks uh, for themselves in this regard. And so Paul gives us something priceless here in verses 22 through 24. It is important to notice that Paul, what Paul was facing in his life and in his ministry at the time. There's a little bit of a backstory here. Again, after four years, which constituted his, the, the time frame of his third missionary uh, journey, he is eager now to make his way to the city of Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the uh, Feast of Pentecost, the Jewish feast there in the city of Jerusalem, but also to deliver a financial gift to the Jewish Christians there from the Gentile church and all of these churches that he had helped established. The church in Jerusalem was going through hardship because of difficulty that was occurring there. And Paul wanted to bring this financial gift to them, not only to alleviate the physical and material need that they had, but also as an expression uh, of the love of the Gentile church for uh, those Jewish believers who were in Jerusalem and to kind of communicate the concern, the unity of those two groups, uh, that the gospel had brought them together, and the concern for one another. As Paul shared with these Ephesian elders, he revealed a great weight that he was carrying in the privacy of his heart at this particular time in his life. How it is that as he was making his way to Jerusalem and stopping in city after city as he's uh, making his way uh, essentially from, you know, all these places where he established churches and he's encouraging them on his way home, one final stop there on this missionary journey. And each time he goes to each of these cities, the Holy Spirit reveals to him, uh, whether through a prophet or uh, through a spiritual gift of a prophecy or a word of wisdom or word of knowledge, somehow the Holy Spirit was speaking through people to the Apostle Paul that when he, uh, that chains and tribulations awaited him in Jerusalem. And it appears that people were endeavoring to turn him away from, as a result of this news, from making his way to uh, Jerusalem, that he should reconsider this plan that he has. And so, uh, of course, he was dearly loved by so many. There was a legitimate concern as a result for uh, his physical safety. And, of course, we can understand why they would attempt to dissuade Paul from going to Jerusalem when we consider the words in the passage, number one, chains, and then number two, tribulations. When they talk about chains awaiting him, this is imprisonment. 
This isn't merely imprisonment, but this is to be in a prison cell and to be chained within that prison cell. When they use the word here of the fact that tribulation awaited him, the idea is that great hardship was awaiting him. The Greek word that's used there is thlipsis, and it speaks of a crushing trouble. It speaks of a great weight that is pressing down upon a person. It was a word that was used in the ancient world for the crushing of grapes until the juice came forth. In ancient times, there was a, it was used as a particular means of punishment or interrogation where a man would be laid on his back facing up uh, toward the sky and they would put a great board on his chest and then a great boulder on top of the board and it would be so heavy that as he would exhale, exhale the breath out of his lungs that the weight was sufficient enough that he couldn't inhale and draw in any other breath. And so it was essentially uh, a means of dying of suffocation. It was a means of interrogation to get a person uh, to confess to some kind of uh, wrongdoing. And, uh, and so it spoke of something that was a tremendous weight or a tremendous uh, pressure, the tremendous tribulation of it. And this is the word that the Holy Spirit uses to describe what it is that uh, awaits the apostle uh, Paul in Jerusalem in his immediate future, a kind of a trial that is one where you literally cannot catch your breath. Uh, because, because of the strength of it, because of the weight of it. And sometimes life is just like that. There are these kind of trials that come into our lives, and it doesn't matter how good we are, it doesn't matter how godly we are, it doesn't matter uh, how uh, fully and completely we are in the will of God, it doesn't matter how faithful we are, these trials still come into our lives, the tribulations still comes in, come into our lives. And if that's you this morning, that kind of a trial that you're in the middle of where uh, you can hardly catch your breath and you figure there must be something wrong with you because uh, deep down I think that most of us go into the same default position that I go into, and that is that if I live a good life, if I live a godly life, if I obey God's uh, word, if I serve the Lord, that somehow all of that is supposed to translate into life turning out pretty good and pretty carefree, but it isn't true. The will of God in our lives can be very, very hard, and the Christian life is the greatest life that a person can live, but it can be very, very hard. I'm convinced it's the hardest thing that any person will ever do in this life is to live it for God against the stream of all that it goes on in the flow of life, not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. And it's important when we find ourselves in these trials and we're convinced that it must be something wrong with me to realize that it isn't anything wrong with you any more than there was something wrong with the Apostle Paul or something wrong in the life and the ministry of Jesus. It is just simply our faith being refined and purified 
and being strengthened. And in the middle of the trial, God isn't going to lose you. He's got a very firm grip upon you. You're simply being prepared for heaven. And you're being prepared not only for heaven, but being prepared for an abundant entrance into that heaven. When we get into one of these kind of trials, I think that very often our first reaction is self-preservation. It's the natural instinct, self-preservation. And so self-preservation rises to the top above everything else. And the problem is, is that very often when we find ourselves in this kind of a trial, self-preservation becomes so strong that self-preservation becomes more important to us than even the will of God for our lives, and we can then begin to make all kinds of decisions based solely upon what will stop the pain the soonest or what will allow us to escape our difficulty the fastest. All of these are understandable. All of these are strong natural instincts. And like Jonah, we can catch the first boat sailing in the opposite direction of where God wants us to go. But it's important for us to realize that we, that we do not do that because it only makes things harder, much harder. But I want us to notice, as if you would find yourself in this kind of a place in your own life or maybe at a future time in your life, to notice what Paul did in the face of this temptation, in the face of this revelation of coming hardship. And he responds, he tells us here, essentially in three ways. You notice in verse 24, all three of them are found in verse 24, he begins by saying, none of these things move me. And here is he very simply refuses to allow these circumstances, however hard they are, he refuses to allow them to move him. And the Greek word for move in that passage is an interesting one. It carries the idea of to make. I will not allow this to make me, or it means to move on the basis of some reason. In other words, in the face of these difficulties, Paul declared, I will not allow these things to drive my decision-making. I will not allow them to make my decision for me. And as an act of his will, he stood up against all of the emotion that this news produced within his heart, and he stood up against all of uh, the reasons that were being produced in his mind for uh, discontinuing his current course and finding another uh, path for his life. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, as an act of his will, he determined that he would not allow this to move him. And he made the calm determination to continue in God's call upon his life, whatever the hardships it would continue to produce in his life, and it was God that gave him the ability to do that. And so we ask ourselves this morning, are you being moved, am I being moved by some tribulation that's been introduced into your life or you see coming? or in our Christian service, by the apparent lack of fruit, or the criticisms, or the self-doubt, or the spiritual warfare, or the opposition, or the threats, or the loss of relationship that can so often occur, or the sacrifice that's involved. 
And Paul rises up from the pages of scriptures and from his own heart and his own experience and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and says that you must not allow these things to move you. They are never to drive you. They are not to dictate or to make your decisions according uh, concerning your Christian service. Only God is to do that. We never have the freedom to take and retake that control of our lives. Paul used this occasion in his life and in his ministry, and really it's against all human logic and against all natural instinct to say, in the face of this threat, I am going to choose to make a fresh commitment to God's call upon my life. And again, no one does that in their own strength. No one does that in the face of those circumstances out of their own resources or out of their own determination. Uh, it was God that gave him the grace to do so, providing him with the power to do and the will to do of God's pleasure. And I doubt he regrets making that stand today. And if we need to make that stand this morning, uh, neither will we one day. And so do you need to make that same determination this morning in the privacy of your heart, one or two or 10 or 20 of us in the room this morning, concerning your marriage, concerning the education that God has called you to get, concerning the job that God has placed you in or the ministry or whatever it might be. It's important to understand in this Christian life, and it flies in the face of the entire culture that we live in, that hardship in our life does not give us the right to retake control of our lives and to retake that control from God and to now self-direct our lives in order to escape the hardship in our life. And it is always a very dangerous thing when we resort to that. The second point I want us to see here from Paul is I look at this and I say, yes, I see the decision that he makes. I see the, the determination that he has in the face of everything that his natural man must have been thinking and feeling. And as I look at this determination in his life, I admire it. I, it inspires me. But I ask myself, why did he do it? What in the world is behind this decision to say that none of these things move me? What in this world could he esteem so highly that he would resist these very strong instincts away from pain and towards self-protection that he, we all feel. And he tells us in, in verse 24, in order to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, in order to preach the gospel of God's offer of forgiveness and salvation, uh, to sinful man uh, through faith in uh, his Son, by grace, through faith, as Paul brings out in Ephesians chapter 2. And he said, I do all of this. I make this decision for the privilege of being able to continue to preach this gospel that changed my life and that I know will change the lives of other people. And I know that when I preach it, I am preaching to them the single most important message that they will ever hear in their life. But I want you to notice as well 
that for the Apostle Paul, as he reveals it to us here, the entire focus and goal of his life was to finish his ministry with joy. What is it to finish my ministry with joy? It was and is to one day hear from the very lips of Jesus himself, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Again, without which hearing as a Christian, none of us can consider our lives to have been successfully lived. The Bible teaches that each and every one of us, even as Christians, one day we're going to stand before Jesus. It is what is known as the Bema seat of Christ. It is the judgment seat uh, of Christ. It is also referred to as the reward seat of Christ. And that one day we're going to give an account for our faithfulness to his call upon our lives and then to be rewarded for it. Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I mentioned it this morning because I wonder how many Christians today live, we live our Christian lives in complete ignorance of this uh, event that is in every one of our futures. And Paul wrote and he said, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And this accounting that's going to uh, uh, occur before the judgment seat of Christ, it isn't an accounting for our sins. We will not be judged for our sins. But it is a judgment uh, concerning our faithfulness to the ministry and the life that God has called us individually to. It's important to realize as well that it is not the white throne judgment that's being spoken of here. That's a white, that white throne judgment is a judgment to damnation and uh, eternal judgment. No Christian will stand before Jesus as our judge for our sins. But it is important to realize that this Bema seat judgment, this judgment seat of Christ, this event is in each of our futures as Christians, and it is a judgment uh, by Jesus himself, and it is a judgment before Jesus himself. The concept of the Bema seat judgment is essentially uh, comes from Greek culture. I mean, not the concept, but the, the imagery of it. Uh, it comes from the ancient Olympic games where a judge would sit on what was called the Bema seat at the finish line of these races and contests. And it was the judge's purpose then to determine what position the runners came in and crossed the line, who finished first, second, third, and so forth, and then to appropriate the proper reward to each one of the runners. That's the imagery behind uh, the Bema seat. And so we don't need to finish in our lives and in our ministries first, second, or third. That's not the idea. We're not in competition with one another in any of this. All we need to do to receive a reward at that finish line, at that Bema seat, is to simply be good and faithful servants to what God has called each of us to do. 
Jesus gave a, a glimpse uh, of this judgment in what is known as his parable of the Minas in uh, Luke chapter uh, 19. And he spoke about a king that was going to leave and depart to uh, a, a distant land and, before, uh, and uh, was going to then one day return. And he called ten of his servants together, and he gave them ten minas. And he said, I gave each one of them one, and he said, do business until I come. Occupy until I come. And uh, he told, declares that the citizens of, uh, of this king, they hated him. They sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to, man to reign over us. And so it was, Jesus said, that when the king returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants, these ten, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him once again, that he might know how much each man had gained by trading. And the first came saying, Master, your mina has uh, earned ten minas. And then he said, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. The second came to him and said, Master, your mina has uh, earned five minas. And likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. And then another came uh, to the master and said, Here is your mina, which I have kept uh, put away in a handkerchief because I feared you, because you're an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. In other words, what matter to, is it that I, you know, fulfill my ministry? God's big, He's strong, He's going to do what He's going to do anyway. And so He hides behind this excuse. And then the king said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. For you knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. And why then did you not put my money at least in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And then he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he already has ten minas. And the Lord uh, said, for I say to you that everyone who has will be given uh, that everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Jesus, in his parable of the talents, uh, speaks much the same thing, where those that have been faithful uh, in their uh, service to him, in his absence, in that time frame between his first and his second coming, that he speaks to them, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord or the joy of your master. And what Paul reveals to us here in this passage is that he lived his entire life dominated by that coming event uh, with the desire to finish with joy, that is to hear that well done from Jesus. And when you think about a man who lives his entire life under the weight of that moment, that appointment, that face-to-face -face with Jesus. In the current age, in the modern age, we can almost look at it and say that's fanatical. People would think I was crazy if I lived with that kind of, uh, you know, single-mindedness and so forth. Uh, but I'll tell you what seems fanatical in our modern age is not fanatical when we look at the definition of Scripture from uh, uh, the definition of the Christian life from Scripture. And finally, as we look at Paul here 
and, and we ask, what's required in order to do so? What's required in order to live life with that kind of singleness of focus? That to one day stand before Jesus in that environment of the Bema Seat, and then to hear that well done one day. What is a necessary ingredient that has to be a part of each of our lives to hear that well done ultimately? And he tells us here when he declares, I do not count my life dear to myself. Would you look in your Bible there one more time in verse 24? He said, but, and that word but is worth circling at least in our minds, but none of these things move me. And then that important word, nor, nor do I count my life dear to myself. And then the next two words, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. But uh, nor so that uh, this must be done in order to uh, hear that well uh, done. And this is that mindset, Paul says, that's required to hear that well done one day. This recognition, the realization that there is something more important in life, more important even in my own life than myself, that there is something greater and more glorious to live for than myself, and it is to spend my life fully invested in doing what God is doing in this world, in his work of salvation, in the advancement of the kingdom, and my part in that, and whatever it is that is uh, his individual call upon my individual life. And then to elevate that above my, this call of God, above my self-absorption, above my self-worship, and to do that is to never lose anything. It is always to enter into life as God intends it. And to look at life and say, there is something more important than myself and catering to myself and being dominated by myself and following the dictates of myself. And to do so is never to lose anything. Again, it is to live life as God intends it, and it gives our life a meaning and a significance in a way that nothing else in life can. But what makes it hard, of course, is that my selfishness, I won't speak of yours, my self-protectiveness, my love for comfort, these things are already strongly in me from Adam and Eve. But then I fight a greater battle on this, uh, on this front, and that is the culture that I'm a part of nurtures within me uh, the catering of all of it. It's telling me continually to put myself above everything else in life, everyone else 
in life. Everything is about my happiness, my comfort, my ease. And it's the message that we hear all day, every day, from within and from without in every one of our lives. And then we become to believe that this is the most important thing, is my happiness. I think about how many marriages are ended today because a person determines that their happiness is the most important thing in life. And so the marriage is ended, and the people are wounded, and the children are scarred. And in my experience, all of this is very, very common among Christians. And I think that there are many reasons for it, one of which is the deep down in a person's heart idea, even as a Christian, that this life is all that there is, that this is as good as life will ever be for us. And so somehow I have to make the most of it. And so begins this kind of frenzied rush to experience as much of life as I can and to live it solely on my terms. And this is epidemic around us in any area you want to take it into life. But Paul viewed life differently, very differently, and he viewed it biblically, that this life is not to be lived predominantly for this life but that it is to be lived for the life to come. And for the Christian who knows that there is a life to come, that there is a heaven on the other side of all of this, that all of this life is what C.S. Lewis famously declared it to be, and that is the shadowlands. And that this life and the shadow land, the living in the shadows that this is in comparison to the reality that will one day await us in heaven, all of this is going to give way to what God has planned for us, eternity that is found in heaven. And when a Christian really believes that, then whatever sacrifice is needed in this life, in God's will for my life, in order to secure an abundant entrance into that eternity, and eternity is a very long time, then Paul considered uh, whatever is necessary uh, to uh, give up in order to uh, have that abundant entrance into heaven, he considered it a joy. And Paul wrote at the end of his life in this regard, if you think that he regretted it in the last moments of his life before he's going to have his head removed from his body under the Roman persecution for simply being a Christian and simply uh, being faithful to God's call upon my life, notice what Paul declared at that time. He wrote to Timothy and said, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure, that is my death, is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. 
and in, not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Not an ounce of regret in how He spent long decades of His life at unspeakable sacrifice, and then in the face of a martyr's death, no regret for a moment of having chosen to not only get on that path, but then a thousand times to make the decision to stay on that path, whatever the cost might be. Missionary Jim Elliott wrote before his death at the age of 28, at the hands of the Alka Indians, the Indians that he had come to reach uh, with the gospel. And he wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, that is, this life, to gain what he cannot lose. C.T. Studd, the famous British missionary, said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Jesus declared, and he spoke and said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Jesus, when he prayed on the night before his crucifixion to the Father, he said concerning the disciples and us, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because, and then notice this, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. C.S. Lewis famously put it, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. I'll tell you, I let that search me as a Christian. The most effective of God's servants in this life have been those who have lived, not dominated by this life at their core, but dominated by eternity, dominated by heaven. Abraham, we're told in Hebrews 11, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In that same chapter, we're told of Moses, that by faith Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And what was it 
in Moses' life that caused him to walk away from the very treasures of Egypt, but not only to walk away from that, but then to assign himself to the afflictions of God's people. It was the eternal reward of following God. He looked to the reward after this life. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3 as a reminder to us this morning, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus. He wrote to the church in Colossae, if you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. He said, if I take all of the suffering of my life, all of the suffering that I see in the lives of Christians, and I were to put it on one side of the scale and then put the glory of the heaven that we are headed to as Christians on the other side of the scale, the affliction and the hardship wouldn't be worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. Someone might say, who in the world made Paul an expert on heaven? God did. God did. And Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven, given a vision, a revelation of heaven. Paul speaking of himself. He then says, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. If he said, I, he said, if I even tried to describe to you, not what I saw, if I tried to describe you, to you just what I heard in that environment, I would do it such an injustice that I'm not going to try and describe it. Sufficient to know that it isn't worthy, the sufferings of this present time, to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. And all of them, absolutely dominated by eternity. And it does me good. I don't know about you, but I suspect you're the same as I am. It does me good to be reminded of that as I live within a world and a culture that wants to have me focused on entirely upon this life and, and as if this is all that really matters. The Bible teaches that we are headed as Christians for a very real heaven, and it is a very sure heaven. And I think that's a good theme to think about every once in a while, to take that for a walk and to meditate upon it, that one day I am going to stand in the peerless glory of heaven and that it will be my portion and the portion of every Christian in the world forever and ever and ever and ever. And in this life as we live it, and the older we get, the more we realize that life really is a vapor, 
And in contrast to the length and the beauty of heaven, the reality of heaven, as opposed to the shadow lands, uh, to the, the importance of living for it uh, now and not just in that day. One day the Bible teaches that this world's going to give way to a new heaven and a new earth. Peter wrote, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, not a matter of if, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. This life is not it for us as Christians. This is not as good as it gets for us. This is all seeing through a glass darkly, very darkly, very dimly. But one day it will be face to face. And yes, this life can be wonderful in its own way in many ways, but one day we won't remember a moment of it. It will be all lost completely in the glory of heaven. And all of this reminds me of that famous hymn, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And the challenge for us living in the affluent of, of the Western world, for many Christians, certainly in the Middle East, and in portions of Africa and Central and South America where every single day, not only life in general, not just as persecution as a Christian, is they recognize it for the vapor that it is. And it's so easy uh, to walk as a stranger and a pilgrim, comparatively speaking, through this life and to long for the life to that uh, is to come. But for us, we have so many channels on the television. We have so many movies coming out. We have so many things that we can interest ourselves in and fritter our lives away with that a sermon that might not even need to be preached in the third world somewhere, we desperately need to hear and to be reminded of so that we don't get lost thinking this is it or this is the greatest thing or that fulfillment is found here and to lose sight of the fact that one day we uh, will stand before Jesus and we will want to hear that well done, thou good and faithful servant and to spend our lives in such a way that we will, as the Apostle Paul puts it here, to be able to enter into all of that with joy. And so we see in Paul a great Holy Spirit determination, a choice, a decision, not an emotion, not to be moved by his circumstances. 
And then we see the goal of life for him is to finish with joy, to hear that well done at the Bema Seat of Christ. And then third, we see the mindset that's required in this life in order for that to be so, that I do not count my life dear to myself. And I want us to leave this morning with two great encouragements. If you sit here this morning and there's the great thalipsis and there's the great uh, change or whatever the trial might be in your life, the encouragement of God and Paul to you this morning, for you do not let your circumstances move you. Determine this morning to continue in God's will for your life. Don't allow the circumstances to change that this morning. And I know I'm speaking to someone or some two or three here this morning. And then second, this wonderful reminder that all of this ends in heaven. This is not home for us. Home is coming for us, and it is going to exceed every expectation we have. Don't believe the lie that is in the world, the lie that is put upon us all day, every day, the lie that is sometimes in our own flesh and in our own heart, that we are wasting our life in some way in living it for God and living it uh, His way and that somehow uh, none of this is going to be rewarded, that none of this is going to turn out as we expect. No, we're headed to a heaven that is going to exceed every expectation that we have of it. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for this glimpse at the Apostle Paul's heart. We see a commitment in his life that um, leaves us humble, that leaves us in awe. We know that you did that. We know that you gave that to him. But we're thankful for these glimpses into what was happening between you and him that allowed a Christian to be able to live that kind of life in the face of not only everything that life could dish out against him, but also under the threat of death and his own martyrdom. And we thank you, Lord, to be able to look at these things and to have the Word of God recalibrate how we see things and how we're living today. And we ask, Lord, that the work of your Holy Spirit through your Word would continue long after this meeting is over in order for these things to not only be true of Paul, but also to be true of each of us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would accomplish these same things in our life as well. We want to say thank you for this Christian life and to say thank you this morning for the privilege of being able to serve you and all of the ways that you call us to serve you. We thank you for the significance and the meaning that brings to our lives, Lord, an eternal significance and meaning that we would never otherwise know or experience anywhere else in life. Thank you for that meaning. Thank you for that, uh, uh, the, 
that significance, Lord, all of this and heaven too. We thank you for Jesus that has made all of it possible, and we bless you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.